We started out for six weeks to talk about this table. We're in the seventh and final week because I want to share a few more biblical truths about the family table, and then I want to spend the majority of my time today answering some questions you asked me about them. You have your bulletin. I want to pick up where I left off last week. We've taught, we're talking now about the final chair, the parent chair. If you haven't been here in two months, this is what we're talking about. This is a visual illustration of what it looks like to grow up in God's family. You start, everybody starts outside of God's family, loved by God, but not yet knowing him, not having Jesus as Savior. That person, not to be harsh, not to be cruel, just to use Jesus' own language, Jesus himself, as well as the apostles, would refer to that person as spiritually dead. They're loved, they're welcome, they're invited, but they will not have life in God until they're born again and become infants, become little babies in his family. Then comes the season of childhood. Then the eyes move off the self and move increasingly to others, and Christians become young adults, or as 1 John 2 says, they become young men. And finally, some Christians arrive at the parent stage. And the greatest lie about this chair that the devil would have you believe is that it is for someone else and not for you. Jesus commissioned to make disciples. He told his first disciples, you teach them to obey. What do he say? All things. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves was, was Jesus serious about being completely obeyed? Did he really want to be Lord of all things? Is it then possible for disciples to wholeheartedly obey him? We're not talking about perfection. The Bible's clear that we will not be perfect until we are glorified, until we're with him. But we are talking about maturity. Jesus commands it. Jesus empowers it. Jesus loves it. So this chair is for you. The trouble is, because we have not appreciated Jesus' method, I think many of us are mired in one of the earlier chairs, particularly the baby or the child chair, thinking that that's all there is. One of the great temptations, especially for this 9 o'clock service, since most of you have been believers for a long time, many of you longer than I have, is you have reached a point in your spiritual life where you have become, perhaps in a discouraged way, convinced that what you have with Jesus right now is really all there is. And there are some particular temptations that come along with believing that you have maybe not arrived, but that you can go no further. That you can't be different, that your heart and mind can't change. There is a temptation to settle into resignation. One of the things that characterizes the person in the parent chair is that they understand humbly how much they need the Lord and they are continually, intentionally, personally pursuing him. Those of you who are physical, literal parents will understand this. Parenting is something you get good at, I think, right before you die. Hopefully. If then, right? Just before service, I had 
a man in our church who's a good, godly man, who's older than I am, who has a daughter who's closer to my age than, well, I think so anyway. I'm not entirely sure, but she is a full grown-up. She is married. He asked me for prayer for her. That never stops. Those of you who have kids in your 30s, 40s, some of you have kids in their 50s, you still concerned about them? You still trying to parent them? Have you given up and resigned yourself that you know as much about parenting as there is and you've given all there is and that's it? That's all they're going to get? No, you're still still pursuing those younger people in the family to bring them up. See, really, and before we look at the notes, here's something that I have not said enough. And this is really something that God showed me this, this weekend. This table is not really about us. This table is about being parented by the Father. This table is about being a disciple of Jesus. If you get competitive about this, so I think I'm in the young adult chair. Look at those poor suckers down there in those first three chairs. You've missed the whole point. That's childlike behavior. To categorize and label and make sure that you get yours. This really is about, this is about the process of doing what Jesus told us to do. To follow him, to continually be changed by him so that we will be like him. And the great missing component in most contemporary American churches like ours is we have reduced the method of Jesus to make it so that a few select people, many of whom are on a church payroll, sit for the rest of us in that chair and give us what they can and everybody else is served by them. That's not what Jesus intended. He wanted everyone at the table to be following his son. He wanted to father, to parent. God the Father wants to parent everyone in his family. And by his choice, he does that using the entire family. Babies, children, young adults, and those who can say with honesty and humility that they have arrived in a parenting stage. So, if you'll go with me to your notes before we go to your questions, let me share these three simple ideas in answering the question, how do we help parents? What is it that they need? We help parents, we help those who are now in a position because of their maturity in Christ What do we do for them? We release them to disciple. My greatest dream, my fondest prayer as a pastor is that everyone who is part of the Cross Point family soon arrives at a position where they can disciple someone else. That you would have enough experience and knowledge of the truth and the habits of the Christian life, which you learned in these chairs, that you would have enough love for people in the rest of the family, that you would have a heart for those who don't know Jesus, and you would know enough and organize your life well enough so that you can disciple a few others, including, obviously, and beginning with your own family. We release parents to disciple. And what is it that parents need to make that happen? First of all, they need a church family. They need to be in the communion of 
other believers that have organized themselves and intentionally belonged not only to Jesus, but to each other. And I want you to hear that again because that's a, that's a huge missing component in the American church. And I'm not being critical of America. Just remember, most of my church experience is outside of the United States. So some things, not, I'm not smarter than anybody else, just some things immediately pop to you when you step out of one culture and into another. One of the lies that the American church has believed is that it is local congregations, churches, are basically spiritual gatherings that serve people and give out some kind of spiritual benefit to what it unwittingly reduces to consumers. And when it doesn't work for you, you move on. This may be, and I don't mean this to be hurtful or harmful to anyone in any way, but I'll just tell you one of my great surprises in coming back to the United States is discovering that families of four, five, six members sometimes on a single Sunday attended two or three churches. And some people make a carpool circle, taking this kid to this church and this other kid to this church, and then they come and they go to our church. I don't have time to explain it, but I cannot begin to tell you how that weakens and all that fails to give your kids. Where does that come from? The church is a service organization, therefore, much like a food court. I don't like fish. I'm not going to Wahoo's, but thankfully there's a pizza joint right next to Wahoo's, so I'll go there. My, my wife will get the fish tacos that she loves so much, and Ryan's feeling like a little Greek food. So we'll all, all go get what we want, and then we'll maybe, maybe gather together. Unless we meet somebody else, he meets somebody else at the restaurant, then he's going to hang out with him, and I'll see you back at the house. Have you had that in the lunchtime experience? If you move that over to the church experience, so much is lost. You can't talk about what God shared individually with each of you in the same way that you can if you as a family commit and say, as the early church did, we belong to Jesus and we belong to each other. Does God move people away? Does God move people out? Absolutely. But this is family. This looks a whole lot more like family and marriage than a spiritual food court. And that's why parents need a church family. To stay invested and stay involved in the lives of all of these believers who need them to eventually arrive at that wholehearted discipleship that the parent is exercising. And you miss it when you move. If you're continually on the move to consume a spiritual good, you'll miss what it looks like to work through these things. Can you imagine if families disintegrated at the first disagreement? I mean, there's not a family on earth that would exist probably more than beyond the honeymoon, right? I mean, I've heard some amazing stories of people having the fight of their lives during their honeymoon. What if we transferred that mentality 
into our actual literal physical family, we would be a nation of orphans. And too many Christians feel alone. They feel lonely from God because they have separated themselves from his family. Secondly, they need an ongoing relationship with their co-laborers, with their fellow workers. Parents need other parents. Young moms especially need this. There is, uh, I remember coming home one time and my wife had been alone with the children. It's frightening back in those days, you know, for her, for her safety. It was just, I know that you find this hard to believe, but my children were very demanding. They seem so sweet, right? And in starting to talk to her, she was basically, I'd been gone for a, a few days. I don't remember where I was doing something very important, I'm sure. Um, totally worth it to leave my young family in that situation for that long. But she wasn't talking much like an adult by the time I got back. She was talking in these simple, short little bursts. They had kind of dragged her down to their level, okay? And were beating her with their fresh experience of being kids. Spiritual parents need the encouragement of other parents, too. You moms especially know what I'm talking about. You have probably told, you've got a heart to talk to younger moms. You've, been, you've probably talked to them along the lines that what they're going through that is really so tough is normal. And that not sleeping for the first several years is just part of the deal, right? And that feeling that strange combination between love and rage is just the way it is sometimes. Why God makes them so cute so we don't get rid of them, okay? It really is the cuteness that convinces mom and dad to hang in there and stay with them. If they weren't cute, I really think we'd be having packages mailed around the country with no return address. I've done what I could. Here you go. Parents need the encouragement of their fellow laborers, even Paul. I'm reading the New Testament in his letters with fresh eyes for how much encouragement Paul needed. How lonely he often was. How heartbroken he was when he says, for instance, that Demas has forsaken him, loving more this world. How much that hurt. He says things like, at my first offense, no one stood with me. But the Lord was with me. I want you to pick up something small but important at the end of 1 Corinthians. You know, he says to the church at Corinth, this hard-fighting, divisive, carnal church that was just jam-packed with kids. There weren't many churches, apparently, in Corinth. Apparently, this was the church of Corinth, but they had done their own food court kind of thing. You remember in the first chapter by picking their favorite what? Favorite preacher, favorite pastor. I love Paul. Oh, no. Paul's okay, but Peter, oh, he he really does it for me. Hacks, lightweights, Apollos is the guy. You want to talk about a guy who can really teach the word, you got to go with Apollos. And there was another group that I'm probably the most suspicious of that said we just love Jesus. They're theologically correct, but it sounds a little pious to me. It sounds a little self-righteous, okay? 
Well, at the end of the letter, I want you to hear Paul exhale as he says his goodbyes. And he's going to start people who are otherwise unknown to us in Scripture. But look how much he meant, they meant to Paul. He says to this church, you know that Stephanus and his household were the first of the harvest of believers in Greece. And they are spending their lives in service to God's people. You know what that is? That's spiritual parenting. They are giving their lives over to do what? Serve other people. They are connected to the first, these first believers in Achaia, some translations say. NLT says in Greece, just to make it easier for you to put yourself in the modern world and give yourself a geographical location. Stephanus, Paul tells us, his family, his household were the first believers in Greece. And now they are spending their lives serving other Christians. Let's keep reading. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to submit to them and others like them who serve with such devotion. You hear the parenting there? He says to the Corinthian church, when you find people like this who are giving their lives to serve other believers, what do you do for them? That sounds strange to you in 21st century American ears. That sound a little harsh. One of the other, and I'm sorry to be, give a, be like a pathologist and tell you what's wrong. But one of the things that is, I think the devil has convinced us of is that at the family table, there's not really anyone in charge. The church is kind of an individualistic free-for-all, and there's no one to watch, and there's no one to imitate. That is completely foreign to the New Testament. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why he says in most of his letters, they all have an element of you remember my lifestyle. You remember what kind of man I was among you. Now remember and you do the same thing. That's spiritual parenting. And when we get to the questions here in just a few minutes, I'll read a couple of them and you'll see how much this is a need. Verse 17. I am very glad that Stephanus or Chinatus and Achaicus have come here. They have been providing the help you weren't here to give me. They have been a wonderful encouragement to me as they have been to you. You must show your appreciation to all who serve so well. What's Paul saying? These no-name believers showed up and refreshed my spirit. They encouraged me greatly. You weren't able to do it. They did. Now, you pay attention to them, and if I could use a southern word, surprise my kids the other day, you mind them. You still say mind? What does mind mean? Pay attention to what you're being told and, and do it. That's spiritual parenting. And my point is, this does not elevate someone to a harsh, tyrannical position. That's 
the domain sometimes that frightens people off from consciously imitating any other Christian's life. But it's right in Scripture. It's how we learn to follow Jesus. Look again at the end of verse 15. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to submit to them and others like them who serve with such devotion. If you are fortunate and blessed to meet a believer who is spending his life to serve other Christians, watch for them and imitate them. Do what they are doing and you will grow in the Lord. Final thought. is what I've been telling you. Parents need encouragement. Everyone at the table needs encouragement. Everyone needs help. That does not change because someone has arrived in a position of spiritual parenthood where they are able to teach someone else to follow Jesus. Now, if I could imagine some of your concerns, maybe I'll address them now in the question. What I'm doing next is really unusual in our church on a Sunday morning. I want to wrap up this teaching series by answering some of the questions, and then only a few. I got a bunch. Somebody said, have you really thought this through? You sent out this email to 700 and some people, and you invited them to write you back. Have you thought it through? And I thought, I think so. Well, no, I really hadn't. Okay? <laughs> I should have set up a separate inbox. There's a few that are... Repeated questions, I'll just address the general category. A lot of people have concerns for this chair right here. What about people who are not at the table? This idea of sharing the Christian life with a few other people in a small group on purpose, not for the idea merely of fellowship or merely Bible study, although that will, small groups will have fellowship and they will have Bible study but to intentionally walk along with Jesus, encouraging each other and following him in an intentionally relational discipleship group, that is more needful now for the person in the first chair than it ever has been. Let me tell you something about people who don't know Jesus. For the most part, they have no interest in coming here on Sunday morning and listening to me. How do you know? I've invited them. What persuades them? Seeing the life of Christ in someone else. Seeing the life of Jesus lived out right in front of them draws people to Christ. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw the world to myself. And he has. He was lifted up on a cross ever since he's been drawing people to himself. But how has he chosen to do it? Through us. Through you. When someone in a week after week, maybe they go once a month, maybe they go twice a month, but they are continually around people who really know Jesus, that life will shine through and it will tell this person, perhaps like no single sermon could, that those people who have the life of Christ have something in their lives that is entirely different from anything they've experienced. And they will be drawn to him. I mean, let me do this quickly, and this is completely impromptu. I hope this works out. How many of you were 
drawn to Christ, you were saved through an impersonal means. Like you happened to be listening to the radio or TV. You just had some, maybe you read a tract that you found somewhere. But you came to Christ through an impersonal witness. Not a bad witness, just there wasn't a person involved. There was just a message was delivered to you through radio, through television, through a track, through a book you happened to pick up, and you came to Christ. Would you stand up if that's the case for you? How many of you came to Christ because a friend or a family member brought you to him? This is how it works. Thank you. You may be seated. Almost all of you, with the exception of five of you, almost all of you have life in Christ because someone loved you enough to bring them with you. A small group of Christians living out the life of discipleship. That will do it. That's why we're doing it. For the person in the first chair. For the person who is suspicious of preachers. For the person who says a church only wants my money. Church only wants my money. That's first and second chair kind of talk. Parents understand the value of the congregation. They understand that Paul said in Ephesians that God would glorify himself in the church. They understand those things. They happily take on the responsibility of the local church. What people in the first chair need is to see it first in the life of another believer. Second kind of question that I was asked. And I I wish I could read you this email. I just don't have the confidence to do so. I wouldn't want to even anonymously hurt the person who asked it by talking about their their email. It has to do with this. Someone last week has been greatly hurt by the sin of another person. And and the, the pain just came right off the page. So much so that something I referred to reminded them of how they had been hurt and how they had been victimized. And there's just so much hurt and even self-accusation in their lives as they struggle to cope with it and kind of accuse themselves of their own scars. But the question was this. I'll read it word for word without the context and without the story. If a person is continuing in a sinful lifestyle, even after they have moved to the infant's chair by confessing their sin, accepting Christ as their Savior, and being reborn, can they move into any of the other chairs? Get the question? If someone's whole life is characterized by sin, can they ever get out of this chair? A lifestyle that is characterized, that is dominated by sin, at best, means that that person is an infant in Christ. Sin is never completely out of the life of a believer. But maturity means that sin increasingly loses 
its hold on you. And when you sin, in your sin, rather than fall into condemnation, your sin reminds you of the grace of Jesus and draws you to him rather than sinks you further into condemnation and shame. This is what Paul shows us when at the end of his life, he's still referring to himself as the chief of sinners, but rejoicing as the greatest teacher and proof of the grace of Jesus in anyone's life ever. Now, I know the story. And without going much further, I can tell you that the story this person is referring to was a double life. And no one had any idea. Because that person chose a lifestyle of surface behavior where everything looked good on the outside and there was no one except my correspondent, the person who wrote me, who knew the truth about them. Now, I'm not telling you this is a silver bullet and this is all that God is. But if you're in a faithful church family where people consciously make the choice to belong not only to Jesus but to each other, and then a subgroup, a smaller group of people walk life with Jesus together, those kinds of secrets won't stay secret for very long. God will do the work of, as I'll show you next week, exposing our hard hearts and tenderizing them again so that God can do his good work in them. I'm going to show you next week that it is God's specific intention that we help each other in that kind of work. But the specific answer to that question is no. Several people ask me, can you be a parent in one area and a child in another? That question makes sense to you? What would you say? I'm tempted to answer the question just like that, too. But I'm going to reframe it just a little bit. Here's, I think, the best I can do with that very, very good question. Look over with me in Philippians. Let me show you Paul's answer. Something he taught that I think can help us answer the question. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. Paul's giving his testimony. He's saying in verses 5 and 6, his spiritual pedigree is a Pharisee. But in verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I deliberately considered all my status lost when I met Jesus. I counted it as loss. Not I lost it, but I gave it up. I changed my heart's attitude toward all of my own self-righteous religious achievement. Verse 8, indeed, I count, present tense. I'm still doing it. I count everything as lost because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
as opposed to working hard and being very good and very religious. What do you mean? All of this, Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Super Christian, right? Parent talk? What do you think? That's a spiritual daddy right there, okay? Look at, look at verse now 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Well, that's surprising. (laughs) Everything I had, I counted as loss for Christ. I still do. Here's the one thing I'm doing. I'm pressing forward, stretching out that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul says more than anything in the world, I want to know Jesus. Then he says in verse 12, but don't get me wrong. Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not there yet, but I'm still running. Now, he's going to turn to us in the local church, and he's going to give us some wisdom to answer that question. Let those of us who are mature think this way. You get that? What did he mean? Those of us, other believers who are mature, we should all think, Paul says, the way I do. That you are continually turning your back on the things of the world and continually leaning forward, pressing forward to pursue Jesus. You should never say, I've made it, I've arrived, I'm a spiritual parent, I got this. At the moment you start thinking you've got it, you're acting more like a child. Because one of the characteristics of children is they are overconfident. I saw the most amazing videotape the other day, a police pursuit, and it finally ended when the car pulled up in the dirt, dirt swirling everywhere. I'm watching this through the dashboard camera, and the door of this white car flew open, and a seven-year-old boy popped out of the car and ran into his house. He had decided to take the family car on a drive. The police saw him driving erratically, as you might imagine a second grader would. Chirped the lights at him to pull over, and the kid made a run for it instead. Now, who would do that? The overconfidence of a child who says, I see the keys, I know where the keys go, I can do this. That overconfidence is characteristic of the child not the parent. So, if I could reframe the question and reframe my answer to your question, I think in terms of their overall spiritual maturity, parents are parents. Their character is formed. They are the Lord's. But because they are parents, they never say, I've arrived. And they continually press forward following Jesus. Now, where will that parental encouragement come from? It will come from other people at the table. 
it will come from other parents. It will come from the joy of seeing the difference that Jesus makes in the life of a spiritual child. So I would say if you have a concern that you still have some childlike areas in your life, I would say, no, you're not necessarily a child. You simply have pockets in your heart. You have areas of obedience where you have not learned to trust and obey Jesus. And the people who will teach you to do that are other parents who are adept, who have been brought through a process in the Lord's timing where they have learned to trust him in the area that is so difficult for you. If I could tell a family story. We were living with my in-laws when we were raising our missionary support for a, a short little season while I visited churches in Texas. And one of my kids, who will remain nameless after last week's stories, one of them demanded payment. Um, he texted me and said, you've crossed the line. You really need to start paying us, okay? I'll leave it to you to guess who that was. Um, I was a young dad and... One of my boys, I think, was, oh, let's see, he would have been two and a half years old, almost three. And everybody talks about the terrible twos. Little secret, the twos are pretty tough, but the threes, oh, because that's a two-year-old with experience, you know? They're, uh, it's, it's so much worse at three. So he was about three years old, and we're sitting in my in-law's immaculate, beautiful home. And he comes through like a hurricane, just laying waste and destruction, like the plagues of Egypt, you know, just death and mayhem and bedlam following with him. And just tears by us as we sit there in the living room. And my pride got hurt, and I got a little embarrassed, and I said, Whew, boy, parenting, not easy, huh? And he looked at me, my father-in-law looked at me with genuine incomprehension. And he said, I never thought of it as difficult. What? He said, well, I just, I taught my girls what I told my girls what I wanted them to do. And if they defied me, if they disobeyed me, I corrected them as fast as I could. Here's the money part. So we could get on with it and enjoy the rest of the day. It made a big difference to me. I've tried to apply the simple wisdom of that ever since. Now, in that specific scenario, I was the parent. I wasn't the child. It wouldn't have done for me to chase after the kid doing as he was doing, right? So I told you last week, one time, one of my boys was 10. I got so mad, I started acting like a 7-year-old and trying to correct him. I thought to myself in the middle of it, one of us has to grow up here. Um, somebody's got to be the grown-up in this conversation, and it's not me right now. If you follow that analogy, I'm still a parent, but I have a weakness. I have an area of inexperience. I have an area where I need some parenting. I need some coaching. I need some encouragement and some instruction. I'm reframing it that way for two reasons. One, I believe it's true, and secondly... I believe that many of you will keep yourself deliberately out of discipling others when you actually can because you know that you're still imperfect. 
You'll say, well, I've still got these things that I'm working on. Everybody does. You just heard the Apostle Paul say, after giving his testimony and all that he turned his back on and still turned his back on for the sake of Christ, he then follows it with, I don't count myself as having arrived yet, but I'm still chasing. And some of you, and I could tell you for sure, I could look right across this room and easily on the spot name a dozen people who could be greatly used to disciple others if you will intentionally take that role. So don't let the devil and don't let your flesh and your own self-doubt whisper to you that you have so much further to go before you can ever disciple somebody else. Please don't do that. Can you imagine what would happen to the population of the earth if everybody waited to have kids once they had all their own stuff worked out? Who would ever have kids? Nobody would have kids. Right? I mean, I still sometimes wonder, why, why were these two entrusted to us? We don't know what we're doing. I don't know how to help this kid. I don't know how to answer his question. What do I do? I go to other parents and say, listen, your kids are 28, 30 years old, and they seem to be reasonably normal. They're not sending you bombs in the mail. They seem happy when they sit with you in church. Could, you, could I ask you something? And I get some parent-to-parent encouragement and coaching. Does that make sense? Two more questions. Is it possible to skip chairs? I thought about that one, and here's the answer. I don't think so, and I don't think you would want to. I may have done a disservice to these two chairs because I've only talked about them in the negative sense, for the most part, at least. These two chairs in God's family are precious times. Because when you first come to Christ, the world suddenly makes sense to you. And generally speaking, for most baby Christians, they can't get enough of the Bible. And they just drink, 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 drink the milk. And this is the guy who's got Christian radio on 24-7. He's got so many tapes. He's subscribed to so many different email groups. He's got so many Bible studies coming into his life that he's a little bit perplexing to everybody else. That's a spiritual stage. Most of us, if we know Scripture by memory, probably learned it in one of these first two chairs. Right? You're just drinking in the Word. Later come some valleys. Later it stops working. And you work through some of the adolescent things with God. When merely reading the Bible does not have the same effect on you I'll teach about that later. I'm learning about that myself. But I think the answer is no, you can't and you wouldn't want to. God deliberately takes you through these stages so that you will be fully formed. And the biblical answer for that is I noticed that Paul tells two... Yes, I speak English. Excuse me a second. Get my words in order. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives this wonderful character list of what it looks like to be a pastor or an elder or a shepherd. And right at the end, he says, make sure that he is not. Look, th- look at this with me. 1 Timothy 3.16. 
We need to see two verses here. 1 Timothy 3. I've been saying 16, it's 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He must not be a, what's it say? A recent convert. Pastors categorically should not be, Paul says, recent converts. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So those baby children who are drinking it all in, and the American church is prone to do this too, The guy knows his Bible forwards and backwards. He read the Bible three times this month. He's really nice and he's a really good teacher. Let's make him our pastor. Three years later, there's disaster. Because he got puffed up with knowledge, which Paul warns us knowledge tends to do in 1 Corinthians 13. He kept his eyes on himself, not on Jesus, and he simply lacked the life experience that comes through the rest of these chairs that humble a man and humble a woman to rely on Jesus. We don't put our babies through adversity, do we? You remember saying this, this, I'm really glad I've got this opportunity to really put my three-month-old through his paces here or let him face the consequences of his behavior. You don't do that, do you? You might do that with your nine-year-old. You might do that with your teenager. You might let a few things fall off the plate so that they learn the pain of consequences. No one does that with an infant because an infant can't handle it. What do you do with babies? It's all love. It's all care. It's all tenderness. It's all cute blankets. It's all food. It's all sleep. It's all that they need. These stages right here are vital. They may move quickly, and it may look to someone like those stages have been moved quickly. God has moved them quickly through those stages, and he might, but I don't think he would ever want to send them. Good gravy, my time is gone. Two more questions. Someone asked, well, let me read you the exact email. I feel like the biggest challenge to people trying to serve in the church is time. When I was growing up, my mother was home full-time, and weekends were truly dedicated to family and church because chores were done during the week. The culture has changed. When both parents work, evenings are spent with dinner and homework, and often housework is done on the weekends. The pace is faster, and we often have to choose between family and church time. While Jesus remains a priority, church life comes after family for me. How should these be prioritized? I'd love to hear you preach on Sabbath, which seems to have gone by the wayside. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, me too. Okay. Wait a second, you're a full-time pastor. Yeah, me too. I get that. Let me say a few things about that with the very little time I have left. First, we need to understand that family and church, in God's mind, are never in competition. Because he loves them both. He instituted the family, and he instituted the local church. So there is a tension of balance for us, but they are never in conflict in God's mind. That means it behooves churches, and this is part of my commitment to you, it behooves churches to do two things at the same time. One, to invite you into biblical ministry so that you do devote yourself to the service of the saints and the service of the local church 
outside of your physical family. That's scriptural. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 12 when it says that Jesus is the head of the body and we are all members of it. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to suffer and bear burdens with one another. Giving our lives away in the context of the local church is a mandate. But so is the family. So the question is, how do I prioritize them? Well, your church's role is to call you and continually never give up on that commandment because it's what Jesus wants, but at the same time, organize its ministry in a way that you are not tempted or allowed to neglect the family God gave you. I know the church culture that my correspondent here is writing of. I grew up not in it, but around it. With kids that grew up hating the church because mom and dad were always gone doing something for some other believer. Where was the fault there? The fault was with the pastor and the way the ministry was organized that demanded so much and gave them so little freedom and grace to serve their own family. This relational discipleship process that we're talking about will be deliberately, prayerfully balanced so that you can have the right amount of time so that you can serve other believers through the context of your local church. Will that change as you go through life? You bet. I just had a conversation with one of the most service-minded, servant's heart guys in our church who started talking to me about a joint ministry project we're doing together, but I know all that he's going through, and I said, you can't come. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. No, I, I won't allow you to come. Now is not a good time. Your family needs much. Now, how do you sort those things out? You sort those things out at the table. You don't just put some machinery in motion and forget about it. You stay in relationship with one another. The final thought about this is I think it has to do with our Western thinking. Why we really don't have time. Sorry. I'm hurrying. I should stop saying that I'm hurrying and hurry, right? In our Western way of thinking, we prioritize with lists. And we say, God, family, work, church. Right? Something like that. Can I suggest a, think, I think, a more biblical way of thinking about it? It more reflects the Bible's mindset from the East. Don't think of it as a permanent locked-in, in-ink, one, two, three, four list. Think of it as a dial that is turned. You are continually with the Lord. But there are times, speaking as a pastor, speaking for myself now, when it would be flat-out sinful to answer my phone. I would do grave harm to my family if I answered the phone in this specific time. There are other times when it would be dereliction of duty and a lack of Christian love to not answer my phone. I need to turn the dial. Right now, this is family. This is me doing what God has called me to do and asked me to do this day, this season, these three hours. This is about my physical family. This is about time with this kid right here who needs me. Other times it would be merely excuses to say I need to go spend time with my family because someone else in the church family actually literally needs me to be there. Now what does that take? 
wisdom. It takes a really close relationship with Jesus to hear his voice saying, don't you answer that phone. Don't let the fear of man and your own insecurities push you back out the door. I want you right here focused right now for these people. And other times to hear him say, go. Don't care how late it is. They need you. Go. It's not simple. It requires wisdom. Final question. And ushers, could I have you come forward to save me a little time? Final question. What are concrete examples of those who are parents? What does that look like in real life? Listen. I know they are intentional and dependable. Those are points in my sermon. But what does that look like? Who identifies you at a particular stage? What if you self-identify wrong? May you, may you be taking on a responsibility that you are actually not in the position to take? Sometimes I am afraid to ask questions because I know that some of the things discussed in the... Some of the things are discussed in the message, and I don't want to seem like I haven't paid attention, but maybe they're too broad for a concrete application in my mind. Thanks for anonymity. You know the answer I gave in writing, and I'll tell you and the person who wrote me? The best answer for that, and really the only answer for it, is to come live it. Some of you have never truly been spiritually discipled. No one has ever taken a fatherly responsibility towards you spiritually. If you ever have, and I have, I've had several people in my life that have done that for me. You know what it feels like, and there is absolutely nothing like it. It really is like this analogy. Imagine if I sat down to write for a Martian, someone from Mars, okay? Fantasize with me here for a second. I'm going to write them a book about all that a family does. You think you could write that book? It'd be tough, wouldn't it? To reduce it to concepts and sentences. Wouldn't it be easier to invite them into a family and just make them one of your own for a little while? That's what a dad does. That's what feeding the children is like. That's what it means to organize to get the chairs or the Chairs around the table and the chores done around the house. My heartfelt invitation to you as we close this series is that you would come to the table and be open to the Spirit of God showing you things that you've never been taught and have never been lived out in front of you. Be open to the idea that you may be able to bless and encourage and teach and help someone else more than you know. And be conscious of the idea that wherever Jesus is in your life, and wherever you are in your path with him, he wants you to take the next step with him. Practically speaking, this means that in May, we're going to be starting a few more small groups. We're not going to launch a big program. We won't have room initially for everyone, but we want everyone who wants to be in a small relational discipleship group, we want to give you the opportunity to do so this year. Just as soon as you're ready and as soon as you're able. My invitation to you is to come to the table. Let's pray. Father, 
a very different kind of Sunday. I pray, God, that the concepts I've tried to explain would not just fit conceptually in people's minds, but rather, Lord, that they would hear your voice calling them into relationship with a few other believers, and they would begin to experience it and to live it. Lord, I know behind all of these questions there is need, and in some cases there is pain, and there is also great potential and opportunity. We commit all of that to you, Lord, and we ask you, Jesus, to rule over your church in a conscious way, Lord, that we would be conscious of it and that we would all take our next step with you. And even giving this offering, Lord, is part of our faithfulness and obedience to you. And following your commandment to be generous, we give it to you in your name to make disciples all across our area. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you're nearby next Sunday, we have two services. The first is at 9 a.m. and the second is at 10.30 a.m., both with the same Bible teaching. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach.